You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Maybe seated. Good morning, everyone. Once again, welcome to Redemption Hill Church. If there are kids ages two to four and um, you'd like to go to Redemption Hill Kids, if your parents would like you to go to Redemption Hill Kids, you can go right over there. Across the hallway, Miss Erica will take you over there. And as Rob prayed, I just want to reiterate, please be in prayer for, for Rob Lane. Um, he was simply just mowing his grass and some metal just came back and went right to his leg, went right to the emergency room, ambulance and everything. And uh, he got there and they basically said, see you on Monday. <laughs> and so he's in a lot of pain right now. So keep him in prayer. And also, uh, Skylar would have been up here leading us in worship with Ryan. But um, as uh, Rob pointed out, in his prayer, uh, Megan's grandma died, and they were very close. So keep them in prayer, uh, would you? We are again in our sermon series, uh, Suffering Servant and Suffering Saints. Uh, this is the last sermon in this sermon series. Um, next week, we will transition into a sermon series focusing on Advent, just leading right up, right up to Christmas. And just so you know what I'm planning... I believe I sent this out in an email maybe about a month ago. As we turn the calendar into 2022, we'll be starting a, a sermon series on the book of Esther, which I'm really excited about. Um, we try to make sure we have a good uh, complement of Old Testament and New Testament from the pulpit. We believe all of God's word is inspired and errant and authoritative for us. So we don't want to dodge the Old Testament. We want all of God's word. And so we're going to get into the Old Testament, the book of Esther. Then after that, Lord willing, we'll look at the Sermon on the Mount, the most famous sermon, um, not just in the Bible, but ever. It is a awesome sermon. There's a lot there, but we're going to go through it methodically and systematically. There's, there's a lot in the Sermon on, on the Mount for us to learn. <clears throat> so our, our sermon series on suffering has been heavy, and I get that, um, but I think it's been necessary. And from what I've heard from many of you, you think it is, has been necessary and good. Throughout the sermon series, we've seen the bitter providence of God that causes us to cry out to God. We go through hardships, we go through pain, we go through suffering, but it is the bitter providence of God at work in our lives. We've looked at Psalm 6, Psalm 23, Psalm 25, last week Psalm 88 from Dean, and now Psalm 10. And so my prayer during this sermon series is, is that you could join the psalmist and cry out to God when, when the time of suffering does happen. You'd cry out to God, pray to God, and trust that, that while you are going through pain and suffering, that God is meeting you right where you're at. He's there with you. Every moment. Every step of the way. Even when we feel God is not there. right? Our feelings are deceptive. He is there. He is there. He is with you. So let me pray because I need God's help, and then let's get into today's message. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it, it meets us. Like we, we read your word, God, and it, it just it applies. It's not some ancient text that gets dusty, but we pick it up, we read, and we know that you have spoken and you continue to speak. And so by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
the spirit that is indeed at work here at Redemption Hill Church. Use Psalm 10 to impact our hearts, to create a deeper trust in who you are, even in the midst of pain and suffering that we all experience in our lives. Do this for our good, for the good of your church, and for the honor and glory of your majestic name. Amen. In our, in our modern parlance, um, the categories oppressed and oppressor are popular, at least right now. Uh, within the national discussion on critical theory and critical race theory, uh, these categories are used. So if you're familiar with those things and what's going on within schools and all across the country, uh, you've probably heard that. Now, I'm on record stating how these theories are not congruent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe critical theory and CRT are fraught with lies, and I'm un unapologetic about my stance against these unbiblical doctrines. However, the categories of oppressed and oppressor are actually biblical. Right? We, we tend to react against something we don't like and just kind of throw it all out. <laughs> like, I don't like any of it. And so they're using those categories. I'm not going to use those categories. It's actually not the right way to think through difficult issues. We've got to ask the question, what does God say? And then we take God's word, and, be, and then we look at the world and say, okay, what's going on? And that's what's going on here with these categories, oppressed versus oppressor. And I'm sure you've seen a little bit of that in the book of Psalms these last few weeks. Let me give you another example of, of how the church must redeem specific terms and categories. When we were going through the book of Ephesians, we got to the end of what? Ephesians 5, and we're talking about marriage, right? We're talking about marriage, and there are some words at the end of Ephesians 5 that our culture does not like. Remember? The husband is the head of the house, of the wife, and like the wife is to submit to the husband, and we talked that through, because if you're just going to go Google headship and submission, my guess is those categories aren't popular. I don't need to guess, I know. And so we needed to redeem those words, understand it biblically, so that we can live out God's design for marriage. Something similar is going on here. When we talk about these categories of oppressed and oppressor, I mean, even if you've been following along in your community group, you have seen how the prophet Isaiah has great concern for how people in power are oppressing the poor. God hates it when those in authority abuse their power. Now, the solution to these power dynamics isn't to become anti-authority, but to, but to support good and godly authority. The Bible does not condemn a person in authority who wields its authority for good, right? But the Bible resoundingly condemns the misuse of authority. Why? Because the abuse of authority and power has its effects on people downstream. I mean, just going to level for a moment. It's not in my notes. But how many pastors have abused their authority and it's affected people downstream? It's disgusting. But the answer isn't to say all authority is bad. The answer is to say, what does good and godly authority look like? You can see it a little bit in your English translation, 
but the words are repeatedly used to describe the abuse within the power dynamic of Psalm 10 are wicked and poor. When you get into the original languages, the word poor actually comes out over and over and over again, but our English translations take some liberty here. The wicked are against God, and in the crosshairs of the wicked are the poor. The question on the table is why? Why? Why does God allow wicked oppressors who seemingly thrive to thrive at the expense of other people? Why does God allow that? Have you ever thought about that? What's going on? Here's how David opens his plea to the sovereign God of the universe. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you stand far away, God? Like, what's up? Why do you hide, you, hide yourself in times of trouble? Like, I know you're there, <laughs> but where are you? And why won't you do something? Several weeks ago, we asked the question from Psalm 6, How long, O Lord? Another question. How long until Jesus returns to wipe away the tears and displace the suffering of the redeemed while also executing justice on the unrighteous? How long? The question how long has to do with what? Time, right? At what point in time will the pain and suffering end? The question of why has to do with intent. Oh God, why do we see so much pain and suffering in this world? Why does the wicked murder innocent people? Psalm 8, Psalm 10, verse 8. Why does God seem so far off? When we ask why, we're trying to understand what is our sovereign God up to, especially in those moments of suffering. Like, what's going on, God? Why? When we ask the question why, there, I, there is an acknowledgement, I think, within with Christians, that God is sovereign over the actions of the wicked who are inflicting pain on the innocent. Speaking of the murder of innocent people, here's a recent example that hits home for our brother Joshua. On November 16th, several explosions took place in Kampala, Uganda, a place I've been to, a place our brother is from. Three people died. 33 people were hospitalized, and five more image bearers of God are in critical, critical condition. And many people in that community are now asking the question, why? Why did this need to happen? Here's an example that hits closer to home. Why must God, why, why must we go through COVID, right? Like, what's up, God? Why? Why does there seem to be so much hate that is causing division in our country? Why does it seem like God is not intervening on behalf of his people? Is God absent? Is that what's going on? Even more personal, why the financial trouble? Why cancer? Why the depression anxiety? Why did the spouse leave? And why the painful and debilitating disease? At least when we ask the question, how long, we could say that there's like an end date, right? Jesus is going to return. How long? Well, we know at least Jesus is coming back. The question of why is just so much different. 
we ponder in pain. God, what are your intentions for the pain and suffering I see on the television or in my own life? And why does it seem like the wicked always have the upper hand? Well, Psalm 10 does not give us every answer to every question of why, but it helps you understand the reality of living in a broken and sinful world. And you might be surprised to hear this. Asking why to God ultimately leads us to the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, by, by the time I'm done, that is exactly where I'm going. Your question of why, oh God, leads us to Jesus. When he asked, why? Just like some of the other psalms we've looked at, Psalm 10 is a lament. Uh, a lament is a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. A person does not lament when life is well. A person laments when tragedy hits. King David, the author of this psalm, is being dragged through the mud and through his life, and he's crying out to God. You see that. He knows that his only path of deliverance is for God to break in and intervene. If David had thought that he could have taken care of it on his own, his own problems, he would not have needed to write Psalm 10. But he knows he needs help. Now, it, it's crucial to connect Psalm 10 with Psalm 9. I need to explain that because our English translations do not do us justice on this particular point. In the original language, Psalms 9 and 10 are combined. They're actually combined. Our English translation breaks, breaks it into two. Why is this important? Psalm 9 strikes a distinctly different tone. It seems positive and hopeful. We won't read all of it right now, but here's just a few verses. It's, a, it's a, just a much different tone than what we saw earlier from Psalm 10. It says this in Psalm 9, verses 1 and 2. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonder, wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. And then we read more at the end of, of Psalm 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Like, as I said, Psalm 9 in the English Bible is positive. It's hopeful. And then in Psalm 10, it takes this turn toward lament. So what's going on here? Well, taken together, we read of an appropriate response to God amid suffering. Yes, we praise God in the midst of suffering because he is faithful. He is faithful. There will be a day when God will execute justice on the wicked, Psalm 9, verses 16 and 17. But we also know the deep anguish of the soul in the moments of suffering. Praise is the proper response to God, but so is lament. Lament is also appropriate because it expresses our deep dependence upon God. When you lament, you expose like everything about your life. Like, have you... Have you done that before the Lord when you're going through pain and suffering and the tears are coming down and you cry out? Like you're just exposing yourself to God. You already know your troubles, but when you lament, you effectively say 
My life is yours, God. I can't fight these battles on my own. Whether a person oppresses you or a debilitating disease hits your body, a lament is good and right. Frankly, the American church must recapture the importance of what it means to lament before our sovereign and holy God. Because newsflash, the suffering and the pain and the troubles and the brokenness, they are not going away until Jesus returns. And so we must learn well to lament. And you know what? God is not put off when you ask how long or why. As a matter of fact, he invites it. Now, I want to take note of the swift pivot from praise to lament. If you take Psalm 9 and 10 as a whole, it's striking how quickly the tone changes. But it does make sense. You experience quick pivots in your own life. You're woken up at 1 a.m. because a loved one was rushed to the hospital. You were having a splendid day until your phone dinged and you read that very unpleasant text message, right? The unkind remark from the random person at the grocery store just kind of puts you off for the rest of the day, and you're just like, oh, what's going on here? At the snap of a finger, depression kicks in. I mean, Rob Lane's just mowing his lawn. Beautiful, beautiful day, sunny, 55. Within the hour, he's at the hospital in the emergency room. I love the Psalms because they map on to our everyday life, you know? In the blink of an eye, our posture toward God can go from praise to lament. And then again, mind you, from lament to praise. In my guess, if we, we handle the praise better than we do the lament, which means Psalm 10 is very instructive for us. When life shifts in a moment, we can cry out to God and be like, why? Now let's look at the particulars of this lament. I want to first look at our oppressor from Psalm 10, and then we will look closely at who's being oppressed. Finally, I'll end by attempting to answer the question, why? So within this framework of oppressed versus oppressor, there is a flow to Psalm 10. After asking the why question in verse 1, verses 2 to 11 are about the arrogance of David's wicked oppressor. In verses 12 to 15, David pivots to plead with God for deliverance. So he's, he's talking about his wicked oppressor, and then he's pleading to God for deliverance. And then finally, the psalm ends with just David remembering the truth about who God is. He's got to remind himself of what he knows to be true, or he too will be swept away by his own desires. So if you're a note taker, the points are once again, Psalm 1, so we got Psalm 10, verse 1, we got the question why, and then the arrogance of the wicked in verses 2 to 11, the plea for deliverance in verses 12 to 15, and then 16 to 18. It's just the truth about who God is. So I've already touched on the question, but what about the character of the wicked in Psalm 10? What can we say about David's source of anguish? According to David, the wicked take on a distinct personality. The first part of verse 2 gives us an indication of what David, why David asked the question, why. It says this, In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Why does God allow this? Um, from the Greek Old Testament, this verse, this verse reads more literally, the wicked sets on fire <laughs> the poor. I mean, allow that imagery to flood your brain. The wicked sets on fire the poor. You can hear the explosions going off. So what's going on here? 
Is David looking out and seeing the wicked around him, or is he experiencing oppression for himself, or is it both? Is his suffering internal or external? I think it can be both. Unlike other psalms, though, the historical background of Psalm 10 is a bit elusive. We don't quite know what's going on and what's behind this particular lament. What we do know is that the, we do know the godless nature of the wicked. Uh, Martin Luther said this about Psalm 10. Martin Luther, the great reformer from the 15th, 16th century, he said this, There is not, in my judgment, a psalm which describes the mind, the manners, the works, the words, the feelings, the fate of the ungodly with so much propriety, fullness, and light as this psalm. What does Luther mean here? Well, here's a quick survey of the wicked in Psalm 10. The wicked are about their own, de own desires, verse 3. When a person follows their desires, there's also a disregard for God's law. When the law of God is disregarded, these temptations become vices. And so for the wicked here in, verse, in Psalm 10, excuse me, he's just given into his desires. The wicked are greedy for personal gain, also verse 3. Note the difference in how the people of God are supposed to act. Whatever gain the people of God receive, we know it is from the Lord. And personal gain is to be used for kingdom purposes. The wicked here is like, nah, this gain is mine. I'm going to keep it for me. The wicked are proud, verses 2 and 4. The opposite of being proud is humility. The books of James, Psalms, Proverbs, Jeremiah, Amos, 1 Peter, Isaiah, Luke, Daniel, just to name a few, talk about how God opposes the proud. And we see it here in Psalm 10. Conversely, God's people are to pursue humility. The wicked plot against the, the poor, verses 8 and 9. How the wicked treat the poor is the fruit of their character. The people of God, what are we to do? We are supposed to press into places where the poor and needy exist with the express purpose of sharing the saving message of the gospel while demonstrating the love of Christ. And here's the point about the wicked that I want to tease out even more than the other points. The wicked have no mind toward God nor his law. The moral compass of the wicked is its own desires. Now think with me for a moment. What kind of person would you be if you were left to walk out all your desires and they're unchecked? What kind of person would you be? Man, I don't want to know what kind of person I would be. I really don't. Actually, I can imagine because I got saved a little later in life. I remember what kind of person I was. That's what we have here with the wicked in Psalm 10. Unchecked desires, doing whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants to do it, with complete disregard of God. I mean, look at verses 3 and 4. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. Not only is he just walking out, he's boasting. It's like, ha, look what I get to do. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Now drop your eyes down to verse 11. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. You almost hear him mocking God. And one more verse from Psalm 10, verse 13. 
Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? What's the point of drawing out the spiritual condition of the wicked? First, David isn't saying that all who do not have faith in Yahweh, God, oppress the poor and afflicted. That's not necessarily what's going on here. But when someone acts against God's law and his goodness, wickedness does take on a particular form. Like the wicked here in Psalm 10 is active in not pursuing God. He is active in mocking God. And his character takes on a particular form. Notice that the wicked in Psalm 10 is like not a true atheist. The wicked, like the devil, know that God exists. Perhaps the wicked is a practical atheist, not a true atheist. Whatever the case, the wicked chose to disregard what they knew to be true with the express purpose of fulfilling carnal desires. And really, if you think about it, it's the practical atheist who's a greater danger to God's people. When the practical atheist can disregard God, knowingly disregard God, they become their own God. Their rules apply. Their subjective and malleable morality is the flavor of the day. It's the wicked who think they understand justice. In reality, they're all about upending God's standard of justice for personal gain. I mean, like as a side note, you can't tell me we don't see this right now in our culture or any other culture for all time, right? The wicked attempting to upend God's standard of justice for personal gain. I mean, just turn on the news. It's just like, that ain't right. It ain't right because I instinctively know it because the Holy Spirit's in me. And more significantly, it ain't right because when I pick up God's word, I read and I'm like, that ain't right. Here's the reality check from Psalm 10. The reality check is that wicked people exist. And I know we don't like to hear that. We like to think well of people. I do. But the reality check is wicked people exist. And what makes a person wicked is when another person is taken advantage of for personal gain. Yes, this could include those in poverty. But I have been around the block enough, enough times to guess that many of you have been taken advantage of for personal gain. And perhaps the person who wronged you isn't wicked like what we read in Psalm 10, right? Sometimes it's the person who's closest to you in your life. And in that case, in those moments, the wound runs really deep. It runs really deep. When you are in a place of despair, the question becomes then, what is your response? When God seems distant, what do you do? Well, you lament. You lament. You cry out, why, oh God? It's not on the screen, but take a look in your Bible at verses 12 and 13. Here we read of the plea of David. So we talk about what's the character of this wicked oppressor. What about this plea of David? He says, arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? There are two components of this plea that I want you to see. First, David says, as you read, arise and lift up your hand. 
during the time of David, the idea of a king lifting up his hand is an indication of action. And that's what David is asking for right now in this lament. He's asking God to act. Lift up your hand and act, O God. And I think we can lament that way as well in times of trouble. We can plead like that. Second, once again, David asks, why? Why? What is up with all this nonsense, God? We can read that David is unrelenting in his plea to God. He's unrelenting in his lament to God. He's not giving up. He is clinging to God in his suffering. And while he clings, he will continue to ask, why? Why? Some might contend, and I think I've seen this after years of pastoral ministry, that some contend that questioning God is like irrelevant, not irreverent, irreverent, excuse me. That you shouldn't do it, right? Don't question God. Unfortunately, bad advice has been given by good Christians to people who are suffering. I uh, have heard unqualified statements, unqualified statements. Uh, You just need to trust God and you'll be okay. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. And of course, we all want to trust God, right? But that's not the point here. There's more to the story. There's more going on in the midst of a person's suffering. Like I imagine saying that to someone, and it's like, I don't even, I can't even hear that right now because the anguish and the pain runs so deep. Trust God. I just need to plead with God. I mean, we can get to trust down the road. Yes, you can remind me of that. But right now, I just need to cry out. And I'm talking about good-natured Christians, right? Um, You know, to some degree, I appreciate this reflex. I really do. But as I kind of stated, here's what this reflex does not take into account. God created humans with emotions and minds. God did not create a bunch of emotionless robots who just kind of get in line. No, God created us to ask appropriate questions Because a way a person can grow in their relationship with God in the midst of suffering is to plead, is to lament, is to ask how long and and why. Here's a helpful way to think about the dynamic between you and God in the midst of pain and suffering and in the midst of a lament. I I have two wonderful girls, as many of you know, two wonderful girls. And as their father... I am called to disciple them toward Christ. But as we all know, life is full of trials and pain, right? Even for kids. They have experienced pain and trials as they continue to grow up. So here's the question at hand. When they're going through a trial, do I want them to ask me questions or to be quiet and simply endure as as their father? Of course I want them to ask questions. 100%. Absolutely. And what happens when they ask me questions and perhaps even question me as their father? Hopefully appropriately. The relationship between us grows without us even realizing it. That foundation of trust, without even saying the word trust, it grows, it builds. The same is with God. When you question God, It's not because you necessarily doubt God's character 
You ask God, you, you plead with God because you want to understand. And that's okay. You might question God because you desire an answer. And that's okay too. You question God because you know there's nothing you can do to find resolution by yourself. Let's take the question of God even deeper. For the oppressed, in King David, the thought process is this. If God is king of the universe, why does he allow the wicked to have its way? Pastor Sam Storms draws out the tension here. And this is what David brings up in Psalm 10. The psalmist's anguish is not because there is evil and corruption and oppression, but because God seems to ignore it, seems to ignore it, having withdrawn his gracious presence. Where is God's divine judgment, right, against the wicked? Why won't he act? If you've ever wondered why God is at, does not act, I think a lesson from biblical history can actually fill in some gaps here. Let's go back to the book of Exodus for some perspective. When we think about the events of the book of Exodus, we tend to think of Israel's exodus from slavery in Egypt, right? It's the obvious one, main theme. We recount the, Mo- the time that Moses confronted Pharaoh, right? And like, you know, God uses Moses to drop down ten plagues upon the Egyptians. We think of that when we think about the book of Exodus. We think about the Passover, And then we think about God leading his people across the Red Sea. Pretty crazy. A body of water walled off. People walk through, right? We we think about those things. You know what we don't think about? We don't think about the 430 years. Let that land on you. 430 years God's people spent in slavery. We don't really think about that. For some more perspective, The United States is only 244 years old. But Israel was enslaved for 430 years. Now, do you think they would have asked, How long, O Lord? Or even, Why, God? They absolutely would have asked these questions, and rightfully so. And with the benefit of hindsight, we know God was at work when Israel was enslaved. That does not justify slavery. It's simply pointing out God works in the midst of suffering. Yes, the Israelites went through years of experiencing the bitter providence of God, but God's constant bitter providence was moving toward a day at just the right time when an entire nation, an entire nation would be led out of slavery. Not just a few people, an entire nation led out of slavery. That's what 430 years was leading up to. A massive exodus of God's people. Did the Israelites see what God was doing during those 430 years of slavery? Probably not. I don't think I would. But is God faithful to fulfill the promises he has made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? 100% he is faithful. He is going to fulfill those promises. And because God is faithful, the suffering and pain of the Israelites 
was not in vain. If anything, when God led his people out of slavery, the rejoicing at God's faithfulness would have been at a fever pitch, and it was. What, what is interesting about, God, about Israel's time in slavery and their exodus is that generations of people after look back on that event with amazement about what God did. They don't talk about the 400 years of slavery, although that is certainly a thing. But what we see over and over and over in the Old Testament, constantly reflecting back, look what God did, look what God did, look what the bitter providence of God led us to, an entire nation being led out of slavery. I think that story helps us to understand the suffering that we may experience on a daily, weekly, monthly, and a yearly basis. God is still at work. If you want to understand your sovereign God in your suffering, you have to sometimes have the long game in view. The long game. We're so prone to want instant reactions, right? We want to microwave everything and get it right now. It's not how God works at all. You've got to have the long game in view. Yes, you should cry out in those moments when you experience pain and suffering, but you cry out knowing God will ultimately lead you out of the pain. And it's the hope of the oppressed in which I want to now turn, this, this hope that we will be lead at, led out of the suffering. Let's take a look at verses 16 to 18. David says, remember, talking about the wicked, pleading to God, and then he proclaims, kind of going back to, to Psalm 9 in our English Bibles, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from this land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. Like the wicked have one kind of desire, but there is a desire of the afflicted to be let free from their oppression, and God hears that desire. It says you will strengthen their heart. Like how many times do we try to strengthen our own heart? But when you get on your knees before God, he does something and he strengthens you. That's what David knows. That's what we need to know as well. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So, we have read about the arrogance of the oppressor. We have read about the plea of the oppressed. And now here is where the rubber meets the road, as the proverb goes. Here is what the oppressed, presumably again King David, declares what he knows to be true about God. God is king forever. No matter what kind of pedestal his oppressor is on, he declares and he knows God is king forever. Yahweh is king forever. The wicked might have its brief day in the sun, but whatever gains the wicked might make, it's only a brief moment in time compared to his eternal God. In the Greek Septuagint, I've been quoting that a lot because I translate all my texts out of the, of the Greek Old Testament, it actually says three times God is king forever and ever and ever. Three times. He's trying to make a point here. There's no doubt in the mind of David that he knew who was in charge. Ultimately, it's not his wicked oppressor. It's God. Let me press this point into personal application for you. When you are going through pain and suffering, like just try to apply this, 
are you declaring with Psalm 10 that God is king forever? Does the eternal nature of God inform your posture before God, right? Does the fact that you, Christian, live, will live in eternity with God change your perspective on suffering? I mean, like, I hope so. I hope so. I think it should. Your, your earthly life, while important to God, right? It is important to God. We need to remember it's only a moment compared to eternity. Your life matters. God cares about your suffering. But perspective is always important. It's only a moment compared to eternity. We also read in verses 17 and 18 that David takes his plea and begins to apply it beyond his own situation, right? Like he's thinking about himself and what he's enduring, but he goes beyond that. In particular, he calls out the fatherless. I find that to be really interesting, instructive, and helpful. Like David was not fatherless. But he makes this pivot twice in Psalm 10 to point out the fatherless who are being oppressed by a wicked oppressor. David says with insistence, you will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more, right? David writes verse 18, I think with sobriety, knowing that he's not the only one who suffers. He's just got an awareness that's really helpful. Maybe we need to have that awareness as well. We go through things, but other people around us are going through things as well, like Rob Lane and Megan Stickford, for example. So I want to take a step back and take special note of the fatherless in verse 18. And here's the deal. A pandemic that will not end is children without fathers. We can talk about COVID all day long, right? We're talking about two years. The fatherless issue, it's been around much longer is much more problematic. The Bible is filled with statements about God's care for the fatherless, and therefore the church of Jesus Christ is to take note of what's going on and to adopt the same heart as God the Father, the same heart for the fatherless. Why does God care for the fatherless so much? We say that a child who grows up without a father grows up in a broken home. We say it's, quote, broken because God's design for the family is broken, right? God takes special notice of the fatherless. Why? Because they're vulnerable. An oppressor, the wicked, looks at the fatherless as easy prey. In saying all this, I do not want to disregard the courage and strength of, in particular, single moms who lay it on the line over and over to care for their children. But they have to lay it on the line because of the brokenness. Now, here's where God is masterful at meeting people in their suffering and in their brokenness. God sees the pain and suffering and desires to meet people right where they are and the church should do the same thing. We must care for the fatherless, the fatherless before the wicked make inroads into their lives. I was not planning on sharing this, but I could not help because it maps on so well. Uh, on Friday night, many of us went to Together for Good. Uh, Rob had prayed about it and I um, want to make mention of it. Um, it, was a, it was a launch event for this ministry that we want to support this church. So on Friday night, a group of members of Redemption Hill Church attended the launch, the launch here in Iowa. Together for Good is a Christ-centered ministry. It exists to share the love of Christ 
primarily with single moms and mostly children without fathers. Statistically, demographically, that's what we're talking about. There's always exceptions. I get that. But primarily, kids without fathers. Moms who are struggling. Together for Good equips the church to step in to help with spiritual and physical needs. It steps in before the government steps in and puts kids in the foster care, which at that point, it's a roll of the dice. We want to step in before the wicked, however wicked is defined, to care for the most vulnerable, to care for those who are suffering. This is the ministry that has direct application from Holy Scripture, right? Now back to verses 16 and 17 for a moment. There is a contrast between the wicked and God that I want to point out. The wicked aim to exploit the poor and the afflicted. That's clear. The wicked wanted to exploit King David. The God of the Bible takes the exact opposite approach with his people. God wants his people to thrive. God provides all the grace that is needed to live in a world full of of landmines. The wicked perverts justice, but the justice of God is right and proper. The desires of the wicked lead down paths of destruction, but a righteous desire leads a person to God. The wicked mock God by asking why, but the one who trusts God asks why, knowing the temporary pain leads to greater joy. A saint who suffers knows it's for their good and that there is a path of ultimate deliverance. Now to the most pressing question, I think. Do we always know why suffering exists in your life? Well, We do know that in a broken and sinful world, there will be suffering and tribulation, right? Tribulation. But what about a specific kind of suffering that a person goes through, right? That you've gone through. Why did those bombs go off in Kampala, Uganda? And why was that specific person standing right next to that bomb and that specific person died? Why? Why did that drunk driver kill that innocent person. Why? And here's the reality of suffering on this side of heaven. We do not always know the answer to why. We simply don't. And I would encourage you to be comfortable with that. I know it's not a pleasing answer to our rationalistic sensibilities, right? It's not always a pleasing response, but it's the truth. In Psalm 22, verse 1, King David penned these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, verse 1. Why have you forsaken me? Again, I mean, how much does King David question God? A lot. Well, in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, our Lord Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. As our sinless Savior was suffering and hanging from a a cross, moments away from dying, he said this to God the Father, Eli, Eli, lemasakbaktani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Son of God questioned God the Father. Jesus did not question the plan. Jesus did not question the love of the Father. 
he did question in the midst of his great suffering. Jesus questioned the Father, knowing that the answer to his question would be answered. So, your suffering is not in vain. God hears when you cry out, why? And your suffering helps you to know the suffering of Christ. If you are a Christian, that is profoundly important. Your suffering helps you to understand the suffering of your Savior. I'll end this sermon series reading from 1 Peter. It won't be projected, but I encourage you to just listen. Peter says this, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you to prove you, as though a strange thing happened to you, but insomuch as you are partakers of Christ's suffering, rejoice. Insomuch as you are a partaker of Christ's suffering, rejoice. Rejoice that at the revelation of his glory, you also may rejoice with exceeding joy. You cannot understand your suffering unless it's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.